Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Eating Salads. It's me again, Austin Crosby. I just had a, a comment directed at me that we're from California. Move out from California, it said, like implying that we moved here from California, which I think is kind of funny because on one hand, um, yeah, on one hand, California is kind of lame, right? Like Cali, you know, like that angle of it is lame. But on the other hand, you're just like, no, I'm actually from rural Appalachia. So it, in a way, it's a, uh, it's kind of, it's almost a compliment. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, I don't know. Um, man, we had a lot of leftover salad today. Casey's salad from Cava. We had it over tacos. Made it into some pasta salad here. Anyway, um, it's not really what I, what I want to talk about. It's We had our first snow today. And uh, Casey and I went on a dramatic snow walk a little while ago. And, um, yeah, snow is cool. Uh, you know, I was fascinated by how there are these significant events like snows, rains, I think less so in your human mind. We mostly think of snow as being somehow more significant than rain, unless it's like a pretty crazy rainstorm. It, uh, we perk up a little bit more at, at the idea of a snowstorm maybe than we would a rainstorm. But then when you look at it, you know, in data terms, it's like, man, a, uh, the first snowstorm of the year in a way is more significant than the third, unless the third snowstorm is like the heaviest snowstorm you ever saw some other crazy outlier because the first and the last snow of a year are going to be outliers, at least in the metric of time. And that's kind of relevant for weather because it's this cycle Right. So you're, um, you know, you're squeezing or you're widening the wave of the year when the snowstorm moves forward or back in time. Anyway, and then a practical implication of this, not just, you know, talking nonsense about math, is that we're like walking and the concrete is still very much wet and not icy with puddles, but then like the wooden bridge is covered in a little bit of snow that's stuck. So seeing where the snow sticks, for instance, at some point in the year, it will be cold enough that the snow will, will stick immediately to the concrete. It's been cold enough for months to not melt uh, ice or snow on, a, on concrete potentially. Whereas now, like, it's not the case. So there is some objects out there in the world that because yesterday it was 60-something degrees and now today it's snowing, they've retained enough thermal energy that they're still visible and you can take pictures of them in snow rather than under snow, if that makes sense. Like, that, that's an example. So it's kind of cool to walk around and see. It was very cold. Um, 
I also took a screen, uh, basically Casey's um, headshot that she uses, and I brought it into Dolly, and I erased her face, and then I prompted it to replace her face with a majestic chimpanzee-human hybrid woman. And uh, <laughs> and it did right away, and it was pretty funny, and I showed it to her, and she, like, cried laughing, and we both were like, yeah, that's disturbing, isn't it? And she was like, I honestly would not publish that photo, like, because it is so disturbing to see. Uh, <laughs> and we were like, yeah, it looks like Planet of the Apes. And then part of the thing we talked about on our walk was if you trained an image, a neural net producing image generator, neural net trained image producing whatever, on your own images rather than, you know, databases of like just anything that's on the internet that it has been tagged and identified. If you start doing it on your own images and then maybe they're tagged well, maybe they're not, I don't know and produce new images are those the images of the artist like say Casey's a photographer if we put all of Casey's photos into an image generator and then kicked out new images are those Casey photos and then what happens if she does it does that make a difference or if I hit the space bar does that make a difference if she writes a prompt or I write the prompt but it's trained on those same images and there's actually, this is a thing that might not be as clear-cut as you might think it is originally, because all of these little parameters can be changed. For instance, if it's contemporaneous with the artist, if the artist trained the neural net to produce their own images versus if someone else did on only published works versus unpublished works. And one uh, real-life, or I'll, I'll give two real-life examples in the same spirit, you have like Hieronymus Bosch, um, Flemish painter, and you also have uh, Bernini, whose first name I can't remember, the uh, Italian sculptor. And both of them had workshops of other people producing art the way that they trained them to produce it. So they weren't authored by the artist's hands directly, but rather by something that they trained, um, probably using other input methods than like controlling their hand for a while and then taking their hand away, right? They would give direction verbally with words using semantics or um, they would give, you know, image examples as inputs. And that's like the same thing you're going to be doing with neural nets, basically, uh, except the neural net can be more objective with it. And then we got into a whole talk about, you know, if you're a famous artist, if you're a famous long dead artist, and for let's do music, you give all of, uh, I don't know, Vivaldi, you put all of Vivaldi into an AI and then say, now keep going endlessly. At what point does the sample stop being Vivaldi music, right? If, if it's chopped and screwed, how much chopping, how much screwing before it's no longer Vivaldi? It's not even Vivaldi remixed. It's just like the same instruments with no author. 
you know, well, that's not quite accurate because Vivaldi's published works were what informed the decisions made. And they were pretty intuitive, let's say. Like, that's what we're trying to wrap my head around is, like, how accurate an intuition can be before it's no longer intuition. And humans have this biological idea of what intuition versus, you know, observation or empirical evidence is. And um, another example I'll give, you have someone commit a crime on camera and you have a lot of muddied data, but now these, the way that these image neural nets make, you know, the art that you see is they turn white noise into what you see using your prompt in text as a guiding light. Well, if you give them a blurry human burglar face and say, make this not blurry, what's his face? Well, it's going to do a pretty good job, especially if it's been specifically trained for that kind of set of problems. Um, it's going to do a really good job. Now, is that the face of the actual criminal that gets shown to you by the AI? Well, like decisively, no, right? That's definitely not the same person. But then what if they found further evidence, like DNA evidence, which linked them to another guy who they brought in for something else, and they go, oh, this was the criminal, regardless of the artificial intelligence and what that produced. But then they bring him in, and he looks exactly like the image that the AI produced. It is him. Is that him in the photo? Or is that, oh no, but that's just a coincidence. Well, it's not really a coincidence, is it? If it is a perfect match. And this is a deep hypothetical that re requires some like, you know, liberties of hindsight, right? But then now if that happens a hundred times out of a hundred, a, a thousand, 10,000 times out of 10,000 um, with perfect accuracy every time, there will be pressure to just accept the AI's deblurring of the criminal face as fact. Regardless of if there's any other evidence. So, something to think about, I guess. That's what, uh, that's what we've been thinking about. Thank you very much. Come again tomorrow. <laughs>